0: Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.
1: Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. Do you want to know when human life begins and how to explain that to other people? That's what I'm going to ask our guest today, Dr. Maureen Kondik, Associate Professor of Neurobiology and Anatomy at the University of Utah Medical School. In 2015, Dr. Kondik was appointed to the Pontifical Academy for Life, a distinguished group of physicians, scientists, and theologians from the international community whose mission it is to study questions and issues regarding the promotion and defense of human life from an interdisciplinary perspective. Three years later, in 2018, Dr. Kondik received a presidential appointment to the National Board of Science, the oversight body for the National Science Foundation. Her research focuses on the development and regeneration of the nervous system, spinal cord, repair and regeneration, and embryonic development, while she cultivates a strong commitment to public education and science literacy. In June 2019, she delivered the St. Albert Award Lecture at the Annual Convention of the Society of Catholic Scientists. Welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be here. As I mentioned in the intro, you're quite committed to improving public education and science literacy, one of your great interests. So I'd like to begin with a question that brings together, well, on the one hand, your own research, and on the other hand, an issue of great public interest, but not necessarily of clear public knowledge. How about that? And it's this question, a broad question, a basic question, but an important question. When does human life begin?
0: You know, this is a as you say, a, a question that's extremely important for public policy, for research policy, uh, and one that has a surprisingly straightforward scientific answer despite the fact that many people will will claim it's above their pay grade (laughs) we we know a lot about early early development and to answer the question of when human life begins we we first need to answer the question of when in the interaction of a sperm and an egg cell we get a new kind of cell so so long as sperm and egg or the gametes persist we can't possibly have a new human being Mm -hmm. and we have really clear criteria for this in science um, throughout the scientific enterprise, people identify new cells by two simple criteria: so changes in how the cell behaves, or changes in what the cell's made out of. Most typically, changes in utilization of genes, mm-hmm. and often those things will go together. If you change what a cell's made out of, you can expand or contract or alter its behavioral repertoire. So, based on those two criteria, it's absolutely unambiguous and uncontested that a new cell with new molecular properties and new behavior comes into existence in the instant of sperm-egg membrane fusion, which is an event that takes about a quarter of a second, 250 milliseconds to complete. So there's an instant where we get a new cell and... It has now all the components of both sperm and egg, so it's novel molecular composition. And it very rapidly, within one to three seconds, alters its behavior in a pretty dramatic way and starts acting in ways that neither sperm or egg ever act. So we have a new cell in that instant. In that instant. So would it be incorrect then
1: to say you have a fertilized egg?
0: No, actually, that's a very, it's a commonly used term, but it's scientifically completely inaccurate. So an egg that has been fertilized is a new kind of cell Hmm. that behaves in ways that are actually quite contradictory to the major functions of an egg cell and that are never seen in egg cells um, that have not been fused to a sperm, so we have we have a new cell, but the challenging question for the bigger policy mm-hmm. question is what kind of cell is it? Mm-hmm. Is it is a it human a cell, cell? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or is it a human being right much less a human person, which is a separate question right. <laughs> and that's a that's a tougher question to to answer is this where the disputes really?
1: I mean are are we at least disciplined enough in scientific inquiry and when it comes to public policy to say there's a new at least there's a new thing here and we can all agree to that there's a new cell at this moment and so what is the status of that or are we still in the position of questioning whether it's a new thing at all
0: <laughs> I think a lot of that depends on on how honest people are willing to be and I think we've had a reassuring trend in the last 10 years or so, mm. that most people, most biologists are willing to acknowledge it's a new cell and willing to acknowledge that it's even beyond that a new a new human organism or a mm-hmm. new human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think where the rubber really meets the road in terms of the policy debates is the question of personhood. Is is that human being that forms at that instant of sperm egg fusion the subject of rights? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is actually a quite not a scientific question. It's a much right. more of an ethical question. But I think we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. So how do we know that that, that cell that forms, that's a new cell, yes. how do we know that that cell is, is a human being rather than just a human cell? So this can be a scientific question to try and adjudicate that. It is. And um, the easiest sort of most intuitive way of thinking about it is to look at the processes that, that a cell is undergoing and ask whether are those processes, those molecular cascades and interactions and and chemical reactions that are occurring, are those processes ordered towards the health and maintenance of the cell as a cell, which would be true of any human cell in your body at any point in time, or are they pointed towards something bigger? Are Hmm. they pointed towards the production and uh, organization or structuring of new cells that are going to contribute to increasingly mature stages of the human body, of the human form. Right. So that process, the process of pointing forward to increased maturation, is the process of development. Mm-hmm. And I think the scientific evidence is absolutely unambiguous on this front, that within the first one to three seconds, that newly formed cell initiates a molecular cascade that is can only make sense as part of a developmental process, as something that is ordered towards uh, making new cells that are going to interact with each other to producing increasingly more mature stages of human development. So from a scientific perspective, yes. as,
1: as a scientist forming an opinion on this, you would say that because there is now evidence of this development, not of maintenance, but of development, Yes, this, the best scientific answer you can give about that at that moment when the egg and the sperm fuse into a new cell, is that this is now a human being because of its orientation towards its development? Correct. Okay. And is this the place where a good deal of conflict comes in, whether that is true or
0: not? I, I actually don't think that it, that no. it does. I mean, okay. I think there are lots of people who will make assertions that mm-hmm. nobody knows or that you can't really describe a developing human embryo as a human being until some later period in time, until consciousness or until... Does it have to do with self-sufficient, like a, like, a, like
1: the, the organism has become self-sufficient? Because if we're looking for that... Well, then that, that would be, I don't know,
0: age never? 25 or something. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah, right. I don't know any 20, 25-year-olds who are actually self-sufficient. They think they are. Yeah. They think they are. That's, That's correct. correct. So uh, those kinds of arguments, I think, are compelling because the conclusion that a single cell, that little little one-celled embryo is a human being, is a... Is pretty tough pill to swallow mm. even for pro-life people because mm. we look at that thing and it doesn't it doesn't seem to us to have the equivalence in terms of value right that that a more mature individual would have mm-hmm. and I think it's that emotional revolt that that people have when they when they consider the question of rights that um, drives a lot of this debate over mm-hmm. the value of the embryo and whether or not and and it's simpler to to Term that or to to couch that in terms of is it a human being yet? Rather than, well, we know it's a human being, but does it have value? Ah, I see. You're listening to Church
1: Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Dr. Maureen Condick, professor of neurobiology and anatomy at the University of Utah, member of the National Science Board and the Pontifical Academy for Life, and the St. Albert Award Lecturer at the 2019 annual conference of the Society of Catholic Scientists. So it seems to me in what you were just saying that. Part of the question there is what are you looking for if you're determining, if you're trying to come to an opinion about whether this is human life, not just human life, but human life uh, that has value. There's a prior question before you even come to what what you're actually seeing in a microscope. What would you consider a valuable human life? Or not a valuable human life, a human life that's endowed with value, let's say.
0: Yeah, and I I think this is a question that scientists Never look straight at hmm. in in most circumstances because it's not part of our training. People people don't at, in the scientific mindset we don't we don't ask the question of what something really is, what its ontological nature is, so much as we ask the question, what can I do with it? <laughs> How can I manipulate it? What's it made out of? Right. So we describe things, but but answering that that what is it question? You know, is it a human person? Does it have rights? Um, those are not scientific questions.
1: They're philosophical questions in some regard. Yes. They're theological questions. questions, ethical questions. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a that's a nice point to kind of move to talking about uh, one of your works, a, a book that you wrote with your brother, who is a philosopher. You as a scientist, he is a, as a philosopher. It's a 2018 book called Human Embryos, Human Beings, A Scientific and Philosophical Approach. So yes. to bring in the philosophical questions and scientific inquiry. In some ways, it's a complex book, but in other ways, it's very readable and, and a very readable book that's oriented towards the education of a general public. So without getting into too much of what the book does, because the point would be to read the book, which is what people should do, um, <laughs> let me ask this. Why do you think it was important to take this approach, to have a scientist and a philosopher coming together to ask this question of human embryos, human beings, what is life, when is life, what value to life?
0: Well... I think it's incredibly important, and I actually think the book is is a pretty unique um, example of this kind of a collaboration, mm-hmm. because both philosophers and scientists are talking about the same world and trying to describe it um, in an accurate and analytic framework. Mm-hmm. I think nonetheless there's a lot of confusion both within philosophical circles and within scientific circles about what the other side is saying because we don't have a common language. The hardest part of writing this book was probably the three years in advance where we worked out terminology. <laughs> Between siblings, no less. Between right? siblings, <laughs> yes. It was it was we used to joke and call it the Rosetta Stone of, you know, <laughs> scientific to, to philosophical <laughs> language. And it took me years to figure out that when my brother says the word matter, he's talking about something very, very different oh, than okay. what, <laughs> what I understood matter. Better to be. <laughs> um, so we did that, though, and I think we came to we mutually educated each other, and came to a common way of thinking about and talking about both the the philosophical insights and the philosophical arguments, as well as the insights that came from science and the arguments that were based on science, and. Um, surprisingly, both sides were warranting a lot of criticism <laughs> mm-hmm. for for the kinds of arguments that were put forward, either because of scientific naivete or inaccuracies or, alternatively, because of sloppy and inconsistent philosophical understandings of, of what they were talking about.
1: Mm. Are there ways in which you as a scientist and now rigorously engaging with a philosopher and a whole, uh, not different way of thinking, but a complementary way of thinking, a distinctive way of thinking, did you see ways in which this
0: sharpened or improved or called into
1: question the, science, the kind of science you were doing or how you would do it?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of things I had never considered as, as interesting or critical uh, lines of experimentation suddenly became very, very important because the, the analysis that my brother and I did in the course of writing the book helped me to focus on sort of key questions that could be addressed by science but had not actually been addressed. Mm-hmm. And similarly some things that I had great anxiety about. Oh my gosh, you know my colleagues are going to go off and do some horrible Mengele kind of experiment. Actually philosophically probably were not as threatening as as I had originally oh, really? felt they were. Hmm. So so yeah, I believe it was a it was an excellent education for me and uh, and I can't speak for my brother, but I, I hope it was a symmetrical experience
1: for him. <laughs> well, I imagine that's part of the process of writing the book is I can't speak for my brother, and he has to say I can't speak for my sister. We have to allow each other to speak. So that book came out in 2018, yet but another it's come out in 2019 that you also wrote with your brother. Can you tell us a little about that?
0: Actually, that book I is I'm a single author on. Oh, I'm sorry, um, I thought that
1: one was. Also yeah, a book. and yeah.
0: it's it's. Um, it's kind of taking um, one of one of the most compelling arguments that we address in the book uh, that I wrote with my brother mm-hmm. is this notion of delayed hominization based on the twinning argument. Okay, so many people, both Catholic theologians as well as biologists, have argued that because an embryo, a human embryo, is capable of producing an identical twin up until the fourteenth day of development, hmm. that prior to that point you can't have a single human individual because you can't have one entity that could be both one person and also two people so the view in the is future. that because
1: there's there seems to be some kind of indeterminacy in these 14 days whether it is one organism or will potentially become two as right. a twin therefore you can't say it's a full blown human organism beforehand because right. it hasn't been determined. Okay.
0: So that that is I think of all of the many arguments for for viewing early embryos as something other than a human a human being, yes. a human individual. That is actually probably the strongest argument. Okay. So we did address it in the book, but that analysis prompted me to to kind of broaden my thinking about the question and also to roll in the the converse Question, which is the question of um, human human chimerism. So, you, there are situations in which two embryos can fuse together to produce a single embryo oh. that has a mix of cells within it from that derive from each of the original two embryos. And this can even happen for a for fraternal twins, so hmm. um, male and female a brother and sister as early embryos can fuse to produce a single individual who has fifty percent male cells and fifty percent female wow. cells, but is still born as a single individual who will have certain kinds of medical problems associated with the fact that they have this this strange cellular composition, right. but it does happen. So what does that mean yeah. for our view of early embryos and for their individuality, and for the question of ensoulment? When does a unique human soul exist if, if these kinds of biological events can happen? So I did write an entire book on the topic of twinning. It's called Untangling Twinning. I can't remember what the subtitle is. <laughs> yeah, like that's... totipotency, individuality, and the value of human embryos. But I Untangling think. Twinning, if you remember, yes. that's <laughs> what will pop up on Amazon.
1: Um, I imagine you can't lay out the entire argument here. This sounds like an incredibly complex play, uh, case,
0: but is the, the basic contours of how you address that? I think the shit. basic contours of, of how it has to be addressed first off there's a lot of scientific inaccuracy in the way people couch these arguments mm. so I, I do my best to kind of clean up the playing field making sure we're all talking about reality rather than imagination mm-hmm. and then I think one of the central keys to, to understanding what is happening with twinning an adequately complex understanding of the term potential so we use that word all the time know oh, my son has the potential to become the President of the United States or maybe a fireman or maybe a ballerina <sighs> uh-huh. you know? yeah. and and yet, none of those things are actual, okay so and and maybe my son has no interest in being a ballerina, and therefore his potential on that front is somewhat different from the fact that he's fascinated with fire trucks and actually would love to become right. a fireman right so it's a very fuzzy term, and people mm. use it in a very fuzzy way. But if you appeal back to the way The term potency is used in classical philosophic literature. Mm -hmm. We have potency that can exist on two intersecting domains. So there's active and passive potency. So the active potency is the ability of something, of whatever it is we're inferring potency to, Mm -hmm. to do something right now. Passive potency is the ability that exists currently in that thing to be acted upon by mm. by something else in a specific way. So I have the active potency to speech, even if I'm silent, mm-hmm. because everything I need to speak <laughs> exists inside of me, mm-hmm. and I don't need anybody else to do anything to make that happen. A chunk of wood has the passive potency to be acted upon by a carpenter to make a chair, right? Okay, but a glass of water does not right you know water cannot be fashioned into a chair even by the most skilled carpenter (laughs) so without something changing about the water that's right so so active and passive and then proximate and remote so the proximate potency is is for example my capacity to speak and it can either be active or passive right so we can have the passive proximate potency of a piece of wood to be acted upon by a carpenter and the active proximate potency of me to speak even if i'm silent right remote potency is something that exists either actively or passively, but something has to happen first. So if I look at a little seedling you know, that's three days old of mm-hmm. an oak tree, mm-hmm. um, it has the potency to be acted upon by a carpenter, but it's both remote and passive. Ah. So it has to grow up first <laughs> uh-huh, to make to wood and bark mm-hmm. and have, you know, not just a little bendy green yes. shoot. Right. In order for its passive potency to be expressed. And if I look at a baby who hasn't learned how to speak yet, mm-hmm. he has a remote but active potency yes. <laughs> to speech because something has to happen first. He has to Develop. learn, acquire right. language before he can speak. But everything he needs to do that, unless he's he has a medical problem of some sort, is, is intrinsic to him. Okay, so let's take all of that active and passive, remote and proximate, and go back to the embryo. An embryo is an embryo because it's exhibiting an active, proximate potency to development. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it a human being. Right. So intrinsic to itself, it doesn't need anything to happen. It doesn't need any information from the outside. It has everything other than nutrition and mm-hmm. oxygen and things mm-hmm. that all living things need. A sufficiently supportive environment, but it has everything internal to it right now to be a single human individual. That's what makes it a single human individual. Mm. If twinning happens, it's revealing a active but remote potency of a part of the embryo to become a whole intact embryo. So if an intervening event occurs, the splitting of that embryo, each of the two halves now is liberated (laughs) to express what is only a remote potency Mm -hmm. to be independent humans themselves. I see. So so at no point in time are there two humans kind of coexisting inside because... Secretly. Secretly, right, yes. Like observed, two souls yeah. waiting and right, you know, right, waiting to right. come out. What you're observing in twinning is a single embryo which is an embryo because of its active proximate potency to develop as a human being mm-hmm. to a more mature stage of a single human mm-hmm. being. And that the parts of that embryo have a active remote potency <laughs> to yes. become two individuals so the kind of potency that exists in that embryo are different with respect to being one or being two that was incredibly clear like i followed you the entire <laughs> way,
1: which no i mean honestly <laughs> like Wonderful. this is a complex thing but uh I, even in the way that you were describing that i'm seeing the pictures and i'm following the line of argument so when you introduced what the problem was it was just a cloud of confusion to me like my goodness this is such a difficult Problem. I can't imagine how you would go about untangling, as you say, this twinning. But just listening to it, it's done, and I can only imagine in reading it how much clearer it would be. Still. Well, thank so, you. I
0: hope it's I hope it's helpful because I think, think this is really a, a a very compelling argument for many, many, many people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it was originally introduced by uh, Grobstein, uh, Clifford Grobstein, in in uh, the nineteen eighties in support of IVF, mm-hmm. um, saying we. We really weren't working on human embryos because they're not really human embryos until after the 14th day they're only pre-embryo yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then it got a lot of support from father norman ford who yeah. who wrote a book when did i begin that uh, pretty much followed the same kind of argumentation based yeah. on the idea of twinning and on this kind of muddled understanding of what potency really looks like
1: and it moves from these sort of theories into hardened and belief into Uh, Everybody knows. Everybody knows into policy (laughs) and all that stuff. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Dr. Maureen Kondik, professor of neurobiology and anatomy at the University of Utah, member of the National Science Board and the Pontifical Academy for Life, and the St. Albert Award Lecturer at the 2019 Annual Conference at the Society of Catholic Scientists. Well, Justin, what you've shared with us, uh, in terms of seeing this sort of complexity, but it also sounds like beauty of the development of a human embryo, and that really, you know, the development of a human being over the course of a lifetime. I wonder, as a scientist, how has your appreciation of human life changed through your years and years of research, of study?
0: Hmm. Well, I, I have to say I have had a long-standing fascination and love for the embryo. It's been something hmm. I entered into studying very, very early in my academic career and have kept up with Ever since mm-hmm. honestly, my scientific understanding didn't alter my view of humans so much as my experience of actually becoming a mother. Um, I almost had too much information <laughs> during pregnancy. I was aware of every conceivable thing that could go wrong and <laughs> at every at every precise, day, precise right? day yeah and and that experience really um, brought into reality what I had been studying academically for so long mm. and it helped me to appreciate just the miraculous side of, of human development, that it's, it's almost unbelievable that we ever have any normal humans born when there are so many opportunities for things to go wrong. And yet, you know, we, we do. And it's, it's really quite an extraordinary experience. So I have an incredible gratitude for my beautiful children and uh-huh. for all the other humans I see marching yeah. about based on having, having been through that myself. It reminds me of this um, essay by chemist, Italian
1: Holocaust survivor, Primo Levi, I don't mm-hmm. know if you know this, but in his collection of essays called The Periodic Table, I think it's the last essay in there, is on carbon. And he traces one particular bit of carbon all throughout its, its life cycle and where it goes and what it does. And he says, tracing this, he said, if it didn't happen on the order of you know billions of times every day, what happens with an atom of carbon, you would actually almost by right have to call it a miracle. But because <laughs> it happens so frequently, like we would be absolutely abhorred by that sort of language. I'm reminding of that is what you're saying in the development of any human embryo into any human being. We lose the fascination with it because it seems to happen so often. And then from one side, you hear it's happening far too often. We're overpopulated. But I love what you're talking about. in terms. It wasn't the science. It was your experience of a mother. And then thinking about all of the development that's happening and how can you... But if you pay attention to the one individual life, call it anything but a miracle that all of this happens.
0: Yeah, it is. It's really quite extraordinary. And I think this is one of the things that we lose as scientists because we have so much power to manipulate, to take apart, to, to focus on some minute element of development and, and understand it in painful, excruciating detail. Right. <laughs> you, you do lose the wonder because, because there's a false sense of, of control. Yeah. You know that that we we because we understand something, therefore it isn't actually as miraculous as it is. But it's it's the uh, accumulation of of so many improbable events that have to be in place and consistently there in order for everything to play out as it should. That yeah. is is really quite miraculous.
1: Well, we're coming to the end of our time. This really terrific conversation. I just want to. I wonder if I can ask you just at the end. You know, many people like myself who aren't trained scientists and who we often feel intimidated by. Having enough scientific knowledge to have a well-formed opinion about something, especially when it comes to policy, or even if we have a conviction to be able to defend that conviction with scientists or scientific research, because it seems like we're always coming up against somebody who knows more science than we do, and we're in a defensive position about holding a claim.
0: Yeah.
1: For people like me, what would you say are maybe the the first step in becoming more scientifically literate, to developing? confidence and competence? Mm
0: -hmm. It's a tough question because it's uh, the body of scientific knowledge is so huge. The vocabulary is so intimidating. It's changing constantly. And as you say, there's always somebody who can throw language at you that leaves you confused and perplexed and you don't even know what to respond. But I think it's it's very, perhaps making an analogy to engineering uh, is helpful. So if you were on a county board trying to determine whether or not a bridge should be put across a Creek at a particular place. Mm-hmm. Of course, you would hire experts who are going to do all the structural analysis and the soil analysis and, and all of the technical details. How much of that do you really need to know, mm-hmm. honestly? Mm-hmm. Not that much. Not that much. <laughs> because you can trust them. Yeah. But only only within their domain of competence. So you ask the engineer, can the bridge be built safely? And how much is it going to cost? And then you tell him to please sit down uh-huh. <laughs> and we go to now the traffic engineers and the and the development planners and say, all right, well, what's your view of place how to put a bridge? Yeah. is this the right place to put yeah. a bridge? What do the commuting patterns look like? And blah blah blah. This will be
1: the impact for the surrounding communities, right? which isn't their even their uh, domain to answer whether you right. should make that impact. So so it.
0: then we have we have the urban mm-hmm. planners and we get their answer about their best assessment of of impact and everything else, and then we have them sit down, <laughs> and then we go to the budgeting people yeah. and what is our tax revenue look like and if we build this bridge are we going to be able to pull in you know more more tax income what's your best and we have them sit down and now you you as the member of the board have the information you need and you have it at the level you need it and yes you know you don't have to know structural calculus in order to really understand what the engineer Mm. just told you Mm -hmm. and if he wants to intimidate you he can pull out his integrals and differential Mm -hmm. equations and you know all sorts of mechanical Uh, considerations that are gonna flummox you and and go completely over your head. They would certainly go over my head. But I don't need that information for your responsibility. What my responsibility Mm -hmm. is. Right. And not dig deeper than you need to dig. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I think we're going to have people writing
1: into the show asking if they can persuade you to run for public office now, because <laughs> your vision of how that all works is very persuasive. We've been talking to Dr. Maureen Kondik of the University of Utah, Professor of Neurobiology and Anatomy there. The two books that we mentioned of hers, one co-authored with her brother, Human Embryos, Human Beings, A Scientific and Philosophical Approach, and her own book, single author, Untangling Twinning. We talked about those two books throughout, so please look for those books. Dr. Connick, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And thanks to everyone out there for joining us on Church Life today.